My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Each week we'll be tackling a different component of FTD, and we invite you to come along on this journey with us. We'll be interviewing the Dream Team at the Penn FTD Center, a multidisciplinary team of doctors, social workers, researchers, and beyond. This season is a beautiful combination of stories and science where you'll hear from both experts and past guests. Whether you're on the other side of this journey, if you're in the thick of it, or sadly just starting to hear about FTD, our goal in creating this series is to provide more context, more understanding, and lots of compassion for both you and your loved one. As we share the stories and we listen to the science, it's our hope that this season reminds you that you are not on this journey alone. This is season eight of Remember Me. Okay, so today we have one of our all-time favorite guests, Evan. Do you think it's because we're boy moms? That's why we like him so much because we're like, we hope that I think our it's sons- the Greek thing for me. I think it's okay. the okay. boy mom thing for you. Okay. Yeah. Evan's my new son. Evan's like number one. And your mom's episode is Viomi. So, Evan, could you just give people like very high level overview if they haven't listened to your episode, like who you are and, and your connection to FTD? Sure. Uh, so, I'm Evan. Should I say my last? Evan Orfanos. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Look at him. So my mother had been diagnosed with PPA, and the years are missing me now too. But she was diagnosed maybe in 2007, 2018, because we had noticed her starting to lose language. And by 2019, she had been uh, basically unable to work. Most of her language was gone, and. Um, we just kept her home. We were able to keep her home until the end. So that was my connection to it. And primary caregivers were me, my dad, and my brother. My brother and I would do weekends, and my dad would do the five days a week. World's best sons. Max and Jack, are you listening? <laughs> okay. So Evan, as you know, we're getting into different behaviors, and um, there's a couple that really stick out you know, from your experience with your mom that we'd like to dive into. And one of them that was interesting was your mom's like anger and kind of skepticism of people close to her. So could you share with us a little bit about that? So my mother was a seamstress and she had uh, alterations in design shop. So at the time when she knew, she said, yeah, we have to close the store. So at the time when we closed the store, and she was home all the time. Um, her friend who would be at the store with her all the time, hanging out with her, her name was Anne, decided that she would help out as much as possible. So she was at the house probably four days a week, um, maybe even five days a week. She'd show up around noon. And my father was working, so she would be there with her. But at the time, my mother's very mobile. She can feed herself. She's Most of her Greek language is still there. Some of her English is left over. And like everything was fine. And then one day she just said to me, why is she, why is she always here? And I was like, oh, she's here to hang out with you. And she was like, hmm, okay. So that kind of started and I didn't know where that came from because when I'm talking about them being close, they were like 
together for years all the time. And my mother never said a bad word about her ever. And eventually it started, she was hiding money and hiding like jewelry and she would hide in things and forget because we would find them. And Anne would clean the house and make her food and whatever she needed, she would get her. But eventually my mother was like, I think, I think she's stealing things. I don't want her to go in my room anymore. And I was like, hmm, okay, well, don't worry about it. I think it's fine. <laughs> and then she'd be so insistent about it, even with Anne being there. But Anne didn't know what we were saying because Anne never knew how to speak Greek. So I would just go in the room and I would dig through things and, and I would be like, hey, mom, come here. And she'd like walk in the room and I'd be like, are these the things? And she'd be like, oh, okay, they're here. Whew. But that distrust was always there. Like no matter how much I could be like, the $50 and ones is in your robe in the closet. That's like my, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Normal, so, right? For Greek families, like just like stuffing money in weird places. Oh, yeah. Just... <laughs> now, when this is happening, I'm sure, first of all, it's pretty uncomfortable because you have this lovely woman coming to your home who's embracing your mom in the midst of her disease and helping your family. And your mom, like, is turning on her kind of did you at that time like attribute it to the disease or like kind of what was your thought process about it right away yeah we were like oh this has to be what it is she would she would leave her in the store where there was like just cash out and she would visit her she would just be like i'm gonna go to the convenience store and get drinks like she would just leave her there so if this woman was ever going to rob her, she could have just swiped a whole bunch of money and just walked out the door. So she always trusted her. Right away, I was like, oh, this is this is this thing. It's got to be this thing. I didn't know that that is a thing that happens. I just one plus one did it. And was like, oh, this is what it is. But then, it, oh, sorry, Rachel. You're about it's to okay. say something. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering if it got to the point where Anne was like, um, this is not for me anymore. No, my mother would just sit there and like be angry, but she wouldn't lash out at her. She would just secretly be like, I don't want her here anymore. And she would say that to us. And we'd be like, mom, she's helping, she's helping dad out. But she would just look at her and be like, mm -hmm. it wasn't all the time. Like sometimes they're just laughing it up. But what we did was at one point in time, she just like put her foot down. Like she's not coming here. And I think she showed up and my brother was with my mom that day and she showed up and my mother just went crazy, like really, really, really enraged. And like Anne came in and she ran into the room, bedroom and like slammed the door, just screaming, screaming, screaming. And my brother was like, this is ridiculous, but this is what came to my brother's mind. My brother said, oh, she's seeing demons. I have no idea why he said that to her. That was better than making her feel bad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. But that's what he said. He's like, oh, she's seeing demons. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I'm here today. Don't worry about it. And she left. And the way we handled it was, I think the next day she came, my mother was very, very agitated. And at that point, we were like, we can't have this happen. And also, I felt bad because I was like, I don't want her to, I don't want this relationship to end on this because of this disease. I want her to have like a good thought of my mother. And also I was like, I'll just be the bad guy. So I was like, just call before you come. Cause she might be like feeling bad or sick or whatever. So Anne would start checking with me and we would be like, no, she's cool. 
we're here or she's not feeling well or whatever. And Anne kind of got the hint, but she thought I was just being a jerk. Like we've resolved it since then. I still keep in touch with her. Not as often as I'd like, but we still text each other or call each other just to check in on each other. But I was like, no, not today. Don't worry about it. You're good. You don't have to come. So I kind of was, I was like, well, Anne can hate me. I just don't want to hate my mom because my mom doesn't know what she's doing. So it's totally fine if, if Anne's like mad at me. I can smooth that over later. But also, you don't want my mother, who's like, be a little frail and imbalanced. Like, I don't want her to get up in a rage and fall over uh, herself. And clearly, it was leading to bad. She was really agitated. So I was like, well, I guess this is the way it's going to go. But the only other person that she was then agitated at was my dad. And then she kind of hit, this is the weird part, and I'm interested to find out kind of why this happens. But then she just hits this, like, peaceful kind of thing, like the last year, where she she only is agitated because she's in this state where she can't get up, she can't move, she can't do anything, so she's getting frustrated. But she would just, you know, like, shake her arms and, like, make noises. But really, after that huge incident, or, like, a couple of weeks of her just being so enraged, and then just being mad at my dad when he left for work... She'd look at me and be like, where's he going? And I'd be like, he has to go to work. And she's just like, no, but she's going to work. <laughs> I like her a lot. <laughs> we are once again graced with the presence of someone from the Penn FTD Center. Today it is Dr. Jeff Manival. Welcome to Remember Me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to get into a very important topic, and that is anger, agitation, and that very challenging part of some FTD journeys. So what we'd love to start off with is just maybe if you could break down why that is a piece of FTD, and then we can kind of go from there. Absolutely. So... Agitation and aggression are part of frontotemporal dementia because the frontotemporal dementia uh, disease affects the parts of the brain that correspond with our personalities and impulses and our identities and who we are. And so as the brain is more and more affected by this disease, sometimes over time, people can have changes in their personalities, become very disinhibited, have increased frustration, agitation. So, you know, overall, I think in essence, agitation and aggression happen because the normal tools that we use to combat, you know, emotional and physical stresses, you know, fail. If someone's uncomfortable, they might not be able to use words to express it. They not, might not be able to make, you know, their, their needs known. So instead, they might act out, you know, physically, verbally, you know, make gestures, slam doors, break items. And so certainly the more severe form of that can be actually violence, where a patient will lash out against a loved one or a, or a family member. And that's the most severe form because not only does it put the patient at risk for injury, but also the loved ones and caregivers as well. Why do some patients experience anger, aggression, agitation, and others do not? Is there any science behind that? There's accumulating science behind it. You know, different forms of frontotemporal dementia or different forms of dementia in general affect different parts of the brain. 
And there's some evidence to show that damage to certain parts of the brain, you know, especially on the right side, tend to result in a lot more uh, aggression and a lot more agitation, while uh, a lot more damage on the left side of the brain tends to uh, impact language and, and speaking a lot more. But there's a lot of crossover because a lot of the places that are, are typically involved in FTD are the places that code for personality. And, you know, we're all so different. You know, each and every one of us ha- is so unique, different memories, experiences, you know, history of trauma, emotions. But most importantly, I think that we all have different ways of coping with discomfort and with challenging things. And so aggression, it, it becomes more difficult to study this because aggression and agitation in dementia isn't just based on the disease itself. It's also based on the person's coping mechanisms and response to the disease. And that's what can sometimes make it the most challenging. You know, a lot of times when you have someone come in, I understand that it's, you know, their care partner, their loved one who's kind of reporting symptoms. Do you find that generally people say, okay, this was someone who was quick to anger before, or is it that? they never were like that and now they're exhibiting symptoms. Is it all across the board? Seems pretty much all across the board um, without giving you know, more specific <laughs> specific examples. A lot of times some of the you know most topical personality attributes that tend to come out with with FTD are there in lesser forms you know throughout the person's life. If they're more docile, you know, over the course of their life, a lot of times they'll have a little bit more of a docile, you know, course of the disease. But that being said, that's a very loose rule that can be broken very frequently. I've also had people who are very docile throughout their lives, kindergarten teachers, you know, uh, funeral home directors who completely changed their personalities um, and sometimes even their, their political beliefs during the course of this disease. Politics. That's so interesting. So interesting. So when a family comes in, and I've heard so many stories in support group related to anger and agitation, do you have strategies or, you know, what do you say to them? So I think that the main thing is that there's a whole team uh, to support, support caregivers. And I think that as a part of this disease, it can be very isolating and loved ones and family members can feel very alone. And I think the first thing to do is to know that there's a big team, that there's a great community of caregivers, of support groups, of resources out for caregivers. You know, I think that a lot of times it can be very challenging to be, you know, it's one of the most challenging jobs in the world to care for somebody with the with these illnesses. And I think that the main thing is that we offer families and, and loved ones enough support so they don't burn out. And, you know, to have the family kind of be a second patient, you know, in in the exam room. So I consider myself not only a doctor for the patient themselves, but also for their family member. You know, depending upon what types of problems there are, there are all types of different strategies that can be used to combat that, whether it's violence, whether it's aggression, whether it's, you know, saying insensitive things. You know, a lot of times education and, you know, understanding where these things come from go, go a very long way. You know, sometimes it, may, it means, you know, having more stimulation during the day and reducing boredom because this disease can really take people out of their normal, you know, routines and out of their normal lives. 
and you know be be kind of stuck and isolated by themselves and having them be part of a community having them be more social can sometimes be helpful um sometimes knowing the the triggers for some of these things providing reassurance for the the family and the caregiver um and the patient is is what's the most helpful thing you know every one of us are so different and we all have such different reactions to the disease that you know there's not one size fits all approach and sometimes knowing that can be helpful the the final thing i would say is that a lot of this does you know uh, end up in some medication management too and so i would encourage you know all of your listeners and and you know to really report to your neurologist your care team you know the earliest sign of some agitation because you know as the saying goes an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and so if we're able to kind of get ahead of the game be a little bit more aggressive with initiating some weaker medications sometimes we can really change the course of the disease and have a lot fewer you know aggression and and uh, agitation side effects kind of down the line but every patient's so different you know sometimes not even that uh, can can really allay some of the symptoms so some of the stories that we've heard some of the situations i encountered with my dad there were little blips of aggression. It wasn't like I was unsafe. You could tell he was escalating. And I just removed myself from the situation and let him go. He wants to punch a pillow. Fine. Do you suggest from a clinical approach that the loved one pick up the phone right then? Or is aggression kind of seen like more than once. I think there's a misconception of like, my loved one's aggressive because they got a little testy here and there. I kind of want to pick your brain on like, what is really considered aggression in FTD? It's a great question. And everyone's experience with it is is a little different. I would say that a lot of times when I hear these little blips, you know, it's something that I want to get ahead of, but it's not necessarily something to go running to your doctor if someone gets a little bit testy. I think that as a caregiver, it's, it's hard because you need to kind of step back and, and survey patterns of behavior. And, and a lot of the time it's very challenging because we're, we're really um, trained um, as family members to, to, you know, to take things very personally, but to kind of take a step back and say, all right, this is the pattern. This is where this is headed. And then, you know, bring it to the clinician and see if we're able to, to change the, you know, change the curve, change the, the way that the, the pattern is heading. I would also say, though, that if there is more of a physical element to it, if they're pushing, if they're shoving, that would be something that I would, you know, go to your care team about more urgently. Because usually if, it, if it, agitation is really turning into aggression or physical aggression, that's certainly something that I would want to know about because that usually doesn't stop. That usually just gets worse over time. And that's something where, you know, maybe the person is smaller or they are not as strong, but even with that, they can hurt themselves. They can hurt other people, you know, if, if you're not expecting it. So kind of getting ahead of the game with that is very important, but getting a little testy, getting a little bit frustrated, that happens with nearly everybody with, with, with FTD or dementia in general. And it's just something that you want to you know, check in with your doctors about because you want to see the pattern of where this is going. You also want to see if they are having these types of uh, uh, little blips of agitation. You know, 
what their triggers are. You know, sometimes it's an experience of pain and they're not able to verbalize some of the pain. So in situations like that, the caregiver might realize that if they just give a little bit of Tylenol, you know, the person might have a headache and we can head that off kind of at the pass. So, you know, depending upon the specific characteristics of it, I think that there are a lot of different strategies that we could do. But I don't think that a little blip here or there is necessarily a reason to contact your doctor, but certainly anything physical or or near physical is. Something that we don't talk about a ton on the podcast, but I want noted here because it just in an effort to make people feel less alone, is that there are many stories that we've heard in support groups and through this podcast of people, um, you know, ending up in jail or arrested and for a variety of reasons, but a lot of times it's, it's related to these behaviors, you know, I'll share my dad's issue. Mm -hmm. So my dad was very early on. We didn't even have a diagnosis yet, but we noticed like extremely bizarre behaviors. And according to him, nothing was wrong. He was fine. He's still working, which he wasn't. But what he would do is in the mornings, he would walk on our block. We lived, here's my street. At the end was a school. And he would go outside in the mornings and ask these kids that were walking for their lunch money so that he could go and buy his one Heineken beer. And one morning he walked too close to the school. He also like wasn't showering. He didn't look like you or I. So he approached the school, asked a kid for money and the kid kind of got scared and turned. And my dad reached for his backpack and pulled him back. And he's like, I'm talking to you or whatever. He said, a teacher called uh, the police department. They came and picked him up right away. And he was in jail. They noticed that he didn't, he wasn't normal. So they sent him for you guys probably don't know what the Twin Towers are, but they're this, it's a huge prison system in LA. And he was on the mental health floor because of these kind of odd behaviors. But that's where it ended. Like there was no further investigation into his mind or like why he was pulling this little boy who didn't give him his lunch money. So I think situations like that happen all of the time, either pre-diagnosis or post. And as a caregiver, you can't always be right there. So in situations like that, like, how do you get them out? It's a great question. And your story, you know, along with so many other people's stories is heartbreaking, you know, and this is a big change from who your dad is and and was, you know, before this. And it's a great example of how, you know, severe, you know, the personality changes can be. And it's very common that there is a legal element to a lot of these stories. You know, we can certainly do a a better job. I mean, you know, once someone's diagnosed, that is usually pretty helpful in terms of resources and and in terms of, you know, understanding. But certainly, I think that we can all do a better job. And I think that you guys with this podcast are going a long way with reducing the stigma around frontotemporal dementia. And certainly, you know, uh, uh, another big problem is that, you know, this gets even, you know, sometimes even worse in, you know, folks of disadvantaged race or uh, socioeconomic class or religious, you know, backgrounds. You know, each each situation, you know, is 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 very unique, and so so certainly a lot can rest on 
the psychiatrists and the mental health field for combating some of these things. But I do think that it's very important that you bring up that these behaviors can be very embarrassing. They, there can be a lot of stigma and they, and they can be very hard to share out of concern that the doctor or the healthcare clinician that you're meeting with might judge you in some way. And, you know, whether it's a story like yours or inappropriate sexual behavior, which is very, very common with this, you know, a lot of these things go, uh, or, or dietary changes, you know, a lot of these types of things go into making the diagnosis. And so they're very helpful tools for us as, as clinicians. So we've heard, we've heard everything. Uh, you're not going to surprise us with, you know, behaviors like that, even if they're very embarrassing or rude sexual behaviors. It's definitely something that you want to talk to your doctor about, you know, at the at the earliest sign of it, because if we were able to, for example, get your father diagnosed and on medications when he was just going up to children asking for them for his lunch money, it might not have uh, escalated into, you know, what it escalated into. It's such a hard disorder because there's so much impulsivity and everybody's behavior is slightly different, but it is a very important thing to to bring up. Um, and I'm glad that you you brought it up. It just has to be very specific amongst you know individual players. And then when you talk about you know people's responsibility, you know people with FTD are still responsible for their behavior, but certainly we want to make sure that you know they're protected. So it sometimes becomes some very uncomfortable conversations that your doctor has to have with you, you know, in the in the appointments, and then you know ma- management with different medications. Sure, and I think that's all. Spot on. My next question would be, to your knowledge, like, is there remorse in there for an FTD patient, like after they escalate and grab the little boy with his backpack or push their loved one or whatever they do? Do you think there's that feeling of, oops, shouldn't have done that? Like, is there any check or does that all go away with the disease? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. A lot of the time there is no remorse associated with it. You know, it's just, oh, like that's how I felt in the time. And that's because the places that that deal with that in the brain are the ones that are being damaged. So I'd love to ask about, we think this kind of goes hand in hand with the agitation and aggression, um, but just like, how do you describe it? My mom became very skeptical of people. She was very, um, what's the word for it? What, what word is it that I'm looking for? Paranoid. 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 Yes. So how does that come into play? How is the brain impacted that's like kind of causing that behavior to occur? We don't hear all the time, but it does come up and would just love to know what we know about that. Absolutely. So paranoia is a very common, you know, psychiatric symptom that a lot of people have. And before before I I get to some of my other comments about that, you know, I, I want I do want to say that if there's any safety concerns with paranoia, with violence, with aggression, with abnormal behaviors, you know, just call nine one one. A lot of times people are taken to the hospital if they need a short stay in a psychiatric unit. That is not the the worst outcome. Uh, that that can happen. Um, an injury is the worst outcome that can happen, not a short hospitalization. So I've I've seen patients, I've seen caregivers have serious injuries, even from momentary agitation. So if there's any concern for safety, you know, let let us do our jobs. You know, that's why we have these these places to begin with. 
Um, you know, a lot of times people will feel like, oh, the person will never forgive me for this. But that being said, a lot that doesn't usually end up to be the case. And usually what ends up being the case is that they get better. And uh, sometimes they're even very happy that they had that hospitalization to get, you know, on the right medications and to make sure that the, that the path forward is pretty clear. Get set up with a psychiatrist, geriatric psychiatrist, you know, a, a behavioral specialist. Um, paranoia can take all sorts of different forms. I think that, you know, there's certain parts of the brain that are degenerating that people become, you know, inwardly, you know, somewhat knowledgeable that things aren't quite right. And so it can be, you know, you know, they can have hallucinations as a part of this disease. They can have delusions as part of this disease. There can be some paranoia that loved ones or family members, you know, are not even, you know, uh, who, who they say they are. In one type of, of FTD, you can actually have a disconnect between the parts of the brain that, that correspond with the recognition of somebody's face and the memories of that person. And so a lot of times someone will have what's called Capgras syndrome, where it becomes, oh, that's that looks like my wife, but it's not my wife. It's an imposter who's, who, who, who looks like my wife. Or this isn't my house. It looks like my house, but it's actually a, a different house. And so that's one example of something on the paranoia continuum that can be seen. The, the wonderful thing recently is that agitation and, and um, aggression and paranoia associated with dementia in general, and, and certainly FTD being the, one of the, the worst offenders of this, um, there's been a lot more research that is going in and even FDA approval for, for agitation for different medications, including uh, Rexulti, which was just FDA approved. So I think that as we move forward, there'll, there'll be better treatments and, and different medications that are directly targeting some of these, what we call neuropsychiatric side effects. So psychiatric effects, you know, evolving from the neurologic disease that we're, we'll be better able to treat, not just with, you know, non-medication strategies like we talked about earlier, but also with medications. But certainly the paranoia, delusions, hallucinations can all be very frequent uh, visitors. I remember once my dad like pulled me into the bathroom and he, you know, that type of wall that's like textured, he swore that was his mom's face in the texture. And I remember it was pre-diagnosis. And I remember being like, what? And he was like, you don't see it. And I'm like, no, I don't. I see texture. And I remember he was like, you're not leaving this bathroom till you see it. And I'm like, I see it. Okay. Like, I'm not going to argue you have a completely different, <laughs> it's not worth it. Is that sort of a go-to method in managing that? Like you don't argue directly with your loved one, you just kind of, okay, yeah, there's mom's face in the texture of the bathroom or, you know, no, that, what do you guys see? I mean, I'm sure you see a variety of different approaches, but what do you think is, is the best way to kind of handle or manage the paranoia? That's a great, that's a great example, you know, because I'm a neurologist, I have to go to the brain first. So what happened there was probably due to some of the visuospatial centers of the brain being affected, that it's not a vision problem. It, it becomes a problem where people have difficulty with perceiving what they're seeing. So the, the parts of the brain that kind of bring in vision are, are what's affected. 
And so it wasn't a visual problem in seeing the wall, it was processing what he was seeing in the wall. But you're you're completely right. You know, you shouldn't challenge people if they have these, you know, very strong beliefs because you're not going to change their mind. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you don't have to agree with them, but I think that, you know, what you did was perfect. You know, redirecting them saying, oh, like, why don't you come down and, and we can make dinner together? You know, why don't you come over here and let's, you know, watch your favorite show? You know, people can get very disoriented very easily. And so just make them feel heard because one of the most awful things for any of us, regardless of, uh, and, you know, you can all look into your own lives for, for examples of this is not feeling heard or not feeling like you can really, you know, say what you want to say. That goes, you know, doubly as true for, for folks with dementia who feel like nobody takes them seriously or nobody's really listening to them or, you know, and that certainly feeds into their own experiences with the dementia itself. And so just, you know, making them feel heard, you know, making them feel loved, letting them know that you're there for them and redirecting them onto something else and uh, not directly challenging them, not yelling at them, because if you yell at them, then the paranoia might, you know, it might solidify the paranoia and it might kind of blow up the whole situation. Paradoxically, yelling at someone or becoming frustrated with them can usually worsen things. But there's no judgment from my end because, you know, certainly when you're living with someone with these illnesses, it can be, you know, so incredibly frustrating from a caregiving perspective. But the more that you can redirect them, the more that you can make them feel heard, make them feel loved. I think that that's really the the non-medication strategy that works the best. Do you have any strategies for the caregiver and like almost self-soothing when they're going through those situations because I've seen a lot of things online and in support group where you know it's so taxing to constantly be in your loved one's world that isn't the actual world we're living in so for example if a mom just keeps repeating you know a story over and over that is not true that you know trying to think of one example there's a girl online I think talking about her mom talked about how she planned her whole wedding this her daughter's wedding and all the beautiful things she did for it she kept talking about it over and over and the daughter's like she never did that like she's taking ownership for all this stuff clearly the mom that's what she believes that's the world she's living in now what can we tell the caregiver that has to like endure that constantly it's a great question. You know, it's something where, you know, we live in each other's worlds. You know, none of us, you know, apart from, you know, maybe some monks living in remote parts of Tibet, you know, are fully by them, you know, by yourself most of the time. And we live in each other's worlds and we are affected by what other people do. You know, I've had patients with a lot of very strong delusions about the government, about, you know, religion, about uh, aliens, about, you know, other things like that. And it's very hard as a caregiver not to let that affect you. So I think that there's a couple of strategies, you know, certainly number one, there are different, you know, meditative techniques, there are different self-soothing techniques that people can do, you know, different mindfulness techniques to kind of center themselves and, and recognize you know, this is this is not normal. This is not, you know, what's typical for this person. This is not, you know, the, the way that this person was behaving, you know, a long time ago. You know, certainly being a part of different caregiver groups, you know, and hearing other people's stories and learning different strategies, you know, from people who are experienced with this is also very helpful. 
um, working with your social worker, you know, going to the website www.psychologytoday.com, which is a wonderful website that allows folks to find, you know, different therapists who, especially different therapists who are specialized in, you know, chronic illnesses and and brief reactions and difficult, difficult relationships. And so if you go onto that website, you're able to, you know, put in your insurance and put in your location, and it should pop up with a number of different therapists who, you know, might, might be very helpful for that person. And then the final thing is if, you know, things are very severe, or even if they're not severe, having some time to yourself is always very important. So there are different day programs, there are different, you know, adult daycare places where the, the loved one can go there for a couple of days a week and be supervised and have a lot of stimulation, where the loved one and caregiver can have a little bit more time to themselves and get done the things that they want to get done so that they don't burn out at the end of the day. Because what can happen with this illness so easily is that people and uh, loved ones and caregivers, they can provide excellent care, but a lot of times they just don't you know think of themselves. Um, because they, it's their loved one. It's the person who, their father, their their husband, their wife. So I think that you know, just taking a step back, realizing that you're not alone in this, um, and you know, being mindful that you can't do it all by yourself. I think is the is the main thing. Doctor Irwin and his team of angels. I, I said mean, it once. I'll real. say it again. I mean, what is your dog's name? We really do need to shout out the dog. Prudence. 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 Hey, Prudence. She's, oh, she's right down there snoring. Yeah, I can hear Prudence. She snores just as loud as uh, my English Bulldog Porter. Um, okay. Are there any other strategies that you really want our caregivers and listeners to know about managing agitation, aggression, the paranoia? Any Any more hot tips? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that goes a little bit, you know, unfocused on is the the question of sleep. And sleep is very, very vital. And it's definitely something that I like to talk about with my patients very early on. You know, I've noticed that a lot of times when someone has a lot of difficulty sleeping, and if we can't really get ahead of the curve with it, it results in a lot of caregiver burnout, a lot more agitation and confusion because circadian rhythms are thrown off and people have a lot of difficulties with, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and not really knowing, you know, where they are or, you know, what they're doing. And and there's a lot of, a, a lot of agitation and confusion can come from that. And obviously being very tired and foggy, you know, from staying up all night and then sleeping during the day, that never helps with, you know, memory, with thinking, with behaviors, with with agitation or, or, or aggression in general. So it's something that I do like to get a handle on as, as early on. Um, there are a whole bunch of different medication options from over-the-counter melatonin that can be taken about 30 to 60 minutes before bed to more strong prescription medications or, or even very strong uh, prescription medications that, that can be given. That being said, you know, for right now, a lot of the time, the non-medication strategies are actually the most important out there, and they can actually really outweigh the medication strategies. You know, things like no computers or lights or, you know, cell phone use before bed. You know, if someone's circadian rhythm is already thrown off, from the uh, from the disease, and you introduce light into their eyes, especially the the type of you know computer or cell phone light that very much mimics the sun, it can 
make circadian rhythm control centers of the brain not know what time it is. So having a very strict bedtime, going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, having those times correlate with when it's dark and when it's sunny, really kind of establishing a very good rhythm very important. You know, not letting them, you know, take a whole bunch of naps throughout the day if they're not sleeping through the night. You know, not allowing them to be in bed just, you know, throughout the day, you know, getting them up, getting them exercise, getting them, you know, a little bit more stimulation. You know, countering boredom can sometimes make people a much more tired uh, at night as well. Um, and so certainly, you know, there's all sorts of other strategies, you know, not falling asleep in the in the chair, you know, having a set bedtime where you go upstairs and you turn the lights off and you and, and you go to bed. Those things can be sometimes even more helpful than the medication strategies. So I would encourage, you know, as early on as you know, humanly possible with these diseases to get people on a very strict schedule. And if possible, not to do quite as much traveling. I know I am a, a travel uh, a travel aficionado, just like you know mo- most of us. But going for long trips outside of time zones can sometimes be very, very difficult and very confusing and disorienting to people. You know, so with any type of changing of the day structure or the routine can really throw somebody off once they're established to it. You know, especially if they have you know FTD or another form of dementia. So getting the sleep, getting some exercise, getting the stimulation, I think those are very important things that sometimes get swept under the rug, but really do make a a pretty significant difference in the longitudinal course of these diseases. I love when we give people like strategies. Me too. I love people need it. People need it. I don't know what I was doing for the first four years of my dad's illness. I still looking back, I'm like, was that the best idea? Some of these things are so... I don't know the right word for it. Like just elementary, like, okay, get sleep. That would probably reduce agitation. And, but we don't think of those things because your world is just so upside down. When you get a diagnosis like this, you're just trying to get through the day. Um, And people just don't have access to like a pen FTD center full of angels. Knowing what you know now, about being a caregiver, being a caregiver at a young age, being a caregiver for your mom. What is something you wish you could go back and tell that new caregiver, like right at diagnosis? What is one thing you would tell you back then? It's tough to come down to one thing. <laughs> okay, two. You could even do three if you want. We are our favorite. You could do as many as you want. I think the one thing I probably would say to myself is you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to live with those mistakes probably forever, but just try to, you know, forgive yourself for things that you didn't know were going to happen because as much as you think you can predict it, you, you can't. So you're doing your best. It's the only thing you can do. Thank you for listening. This season, each episode has a companion blog post that we invite you to read on our website at remembermeftd.com slash blog. You can also check out our website for more support, more resources, and more community events. And you can follow all of our adventures on Instagram at remembermepodcast. 
A special thank you to the Penn FTD Center for their collaboration on this season, and a special thank you to our sponsors for supporting our work. For a list of sponsors, you can check out our show notes. This podcast is dedicated to Frank Baffa and Leah Kent. Beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.